Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, will the province back Hamilton's bid for the Commonwealth Games, or do they have bigger fish to fry? The president has been discharged from hospital and said people shouldn't be afraid of COVID-19. Does he now know more than the doctors? We know what's happening with Thanksgiving. What about Halloween? How will COVID-19 affect that? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. The President of the United States is out of the hospital. Thank goodness. That frees up his giant medical staff to treat everyone else infected in the White House. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. It's just like the flu. It's, just, it's like the flu. You're running out. All you have to do if you get it, and listen, folks, you all learn from, from Mr. Trump. All you got to do if you get it, you just jump in your helicopter, you fly to the nearest university hospital, whatever, wherever it is. We're all around. We're surrounded by some of the best hospitals, and they all got helipads. Just land there. Get your team of 16, 22 doctors, whatever it is. They'll pump you full of everything from bleach to experimental medication. And in 48 hours, you'll be up and walking around and saluting the helicopter as it flies off into the horizon. Huh? It's just that easy. Screw the mask stuff. Don't need that. Don't need any of that stuff. It's like the flu. All right. Let's see. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1211. It is 900 CHML. And I should say it is great to see that the president is uh, upright and retaining fluids and, uh, and continuing on and uh, has not fallen uh, victim uh, to this, uh, like, what are, to, what are we up to, 210,000 Americans have? All right. Uh, feel free to uh, weigh in on all of this. We would love to hear from you. It is uh, 1212. Did I say that already? The Scott Thompson Home Show, week number 30. Will uh, Erskine back at the station keeping us on the air. Feel free to jump into the fun Facebook and Twitter. You'll find the commentary there. Also, you can send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. So uh, lots to chat about and even uh, closer uh, locally and close to home. Commonwealth Games, uh, now local MPP Donna Skelly has says the province will not back the bid for the Commonwealth Games. To find out more about all of this, let's talk to her. Donna Skelly, MPP Flamborough-Glanbrook. She is with us now. Donna, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. I hope you're doing well. I am, you know, week 30. What do you do? You just keep trucking along and, uh, you know. It's, it's and, tough, uh, isn't it? It's, it's a new world. It's, uh, life has been sucked out of life. Yeah, you know, that's a good way to put it. And you know what I'm also yeah. finding now as, as we hit the second wave and we're coming out of the summer, people were kind of rejuvenated and, yeah, we got this in the bag and now all of a sudden, you know, you're feeling this, uh, you know, this all start up again. So, yeah, you can understand that people are feeling uh, certainly uh, pretty anxious about all of this. All right, Donna, let's talk about what's at hand uh, and what's going on with the Commonwealth Games. Uh, obviously, uh, you're talking about the World Cup and the province's uh, interest in host, uh, hosting that. What is the official view? Because there seems to be uh, a, a, you know, a conflict of, of what's really happening here and who's hearing what from whom. So where, what is the government's position on uh, the Commonwealth Bid Games? Well, if I could put it into context, uh, originally the Commonwealth Committee had presented, um, we're working on a bid for the 2030 Games, and the reason why Hamilton was interested in the 2030 Games is, is it was the 100th anniversary of the Commonwealth Games, and the first Games were held 100 uh, in 1930 in Hamilton. It made sense. But for some reason, that bid or that interest in the 2030 games uh, was withdrawn and the committee focused on 2026 and that happened in the spring but prior to that the province had been working with FIFA the World Cup to host some of the World Cup games in 2026 and those discussions had been going on for some time and the FIFA World Cup games are arguably if not the certainly the second most celebrated sporting event in the world. I remember as a reporter going to local restaurants and social clubs and covering stories of people wearing their sweaters and supporting, you know, the their their favorite team. It brought out a lot of people and uh you know, it's it's certainly one of the most uh, watched events in the world. So 
when the 2020 when the committee decided to switch gears and go after the 2026 bid they had already been given a letter of support by the province for the 2030 games but now all of a sudden there's a conflict and i'm not sure that the committee even bothered to look at or was concerned about the fact that there was now um an uh, an attempt to ask the province to host two significant international events in one summer, uh, you know, post-pandemic. And it's it's not only a lot of money, but it was going to jeopardize the FIFA World Cup. So the discussion was going on. I watched and read and listened to CHML and heard about this committee that was pushing for 2026, and they talked about the games and these, the legacy, and of course the legacy included an enormous amount of subsidized housing uh, to address our very real and very critical affordable housing crisis in Hamilton. But there was never any real um, clarity around who was going to be paying for it. All I ever heard was it wasn't going to cost Hamilton taxpayers any money. Well, as a representative of the province, you know who then is going to be picking up the tab. And I wanted to sit down and ask them, you know, what are you asking for? What is it that you want from the province? So for the first time, about a week ago, I met with Lou and PJ and a couple other people from my office, and I asked the Minister of um, Heritage's Chief of Staff and her Deputy Chief to attend the meeting, and we did. And it's the first time that the Ministry had spoken with the group about the 2026 Games. And there is no budget. There, it's, there's still a lot of uh, detail missing in the application in this proposal. It will come in time, but it doesn't exist now. I've been here long enough. I've been a journalist long enough. I've been a politician in Hamilton long enough to know that sometimes things start taking on a life of their own, and there isn't always a clear path to how we're going to be paying for it. And I wanted to have that conversation, so we did. And I asked them about, you know, is is there um, an opportunity to perhaps look at the 2027 games? The Olympics have been postponed for a year. Could we speak with the Commonwealth Games about 2027? Um, how much is it going to cost? How are you going to pay for the housing? And we're talking about a significant amount of money. It's it's between $700 and million and a billion dollars asked for the province, although there's nothing yet again in writing. So, you know, we talked about is there a way of even perhaps having a COVID version of the Commonwealth Games because while we're sitting here throwing around hundreds of millions of dollars like it's, you know, it's a loony, the reality is we have a province that's trying to cover the cost of paying for COVID tests and open up more uh, testing facilities and cover uh, the cost of increasing our LTC beds, long-term care beds. We have real COVID-related pressures on the province. So to just assume that there is $700, 800 $900, 1000000000 dollars laying around to invest in, in games is really just that. It's an assumption. Let's talk. So I said I would go back to the minister and clarify, you know, is there an appetite for the 2026 games? And she said there's an appetite for supporting 2027 and beyond, but it's too much pressure now, um, given the fact that we're looking already dealing and working with FIFA. We don't want to jeopardize that. And you're asking the province to absorb additional costs coming out of COVID-19 with the realities that that has brought about and support additional costs for two major international events in one summer from one budget you know, additional costs for security, for capital expenditures, for operational expenditures. Those are real dollars, and they're hundreds of millions of dollars. That would absorb almost all of her budget, leaving anything else in the province, any other sporting event or cultural event or arts arts event, a concert, etc., uh, fighting for the uh, little amount of money that would be left in the budget. So the reality is 2026 is just not the way that the province feels we should go, they they will and would support a bid that's 2027 and beyond. So the original 2030, or if they can work with the Commonwealth Games and say, look, the Olympics have been pushed ahead a year, why can't we push the, the uh, Commonwealth Games ahead a year? 
So this was so this was sort of the first consultation in regard to changing the year from 2030 to 2026. Yes, it was the very first with the ministry, with me, and I wanted to deal with it because Scott, as you know, we've been around long enough. These things just keep getting talked about, and then I can see six months down the road. Well, wait a minute here. Why aren't you coming up with the money? Well, nobody ever asked for it. Hmm. You know, so, so let's deal uh, with it. And if the issue is the FIFA games, and they've been talking to FIFA for over a year, and then all of a sudden this bid comes forward, and we still haven't spoken to the province, I initiated it. And this this meeting we had was on a Thursday. I dealt with the minister and called uh, Lou back on the Sunday or Monday and said, look, we can't support the 2026, but she will support 2027 and beyond. So we're not saying no to the games. We're saying it's just a huge pressure to put on the government in light of everything else that's going on and the fact that FIFA's already been at the table and you're talking about asking a ministry to support two major international events within months. Uh, in the spec today, uh, Fraporti is quoted as saying the team hasn't uh, been so advised by McLeod's office as well. Indeed, we had been given uh, been given to understand from sources at Queen's Park that quite the opposite was the case. Should it have been her office to somehow have notified these people to, of what was happening, or is that what you were trying no, to get happening? No, because what I was trying to do, um, Scott, they've never reached out to the ministry I was the first meeting with the minister's chief of staff and deputy chief of staff was a week ago, and it was in a meeting that I initiated because I wanted to deal with this. Why drag this on? Why why lead people on? If the reality is it's too much in one year, we've already entertained a bid. We were willing to entertain 2030. That had already been agreed upon. That letter of support is already in their hands. But after FIFA has already come to the table, now you've got them, this committee saying, well, wait a minute, we can't do 2030, or we're not interested in 2030, or let's try for 2026. Well, that's fine, but did you even approach the province, which, would, which you're hoping will cover the bulk of the costs, whether or not that's even a possibility? And the reality is it's not a good possibility because of the, of the work that had already gone into securing the World Cup, which I think is is a reasonable expectation if you've got the two, one is in the works, one is just coming to the table, and one is the, you know, the, one of the largest events in the world. I think it's reasonable to, to at least approach the ministry and say, could this possibly present a problem? But that, that conversation never happened. So all I'm trying to do is say, look, rather than you know, misleading anybody or letting this drag on and on and on and, and sucking all the oxygen out of the room and, and forcing council to deal with, you know, these, these big asks without any real meat on the bones. Let's deal with it. And what is the big issue? Can we do, can we support both international events in one year? And the answer is no. It doesn't mean we're not supporting the games. We've already said we'll support 2030, which actually really fits if you want to look at why the city of Hamilton got involved in this in the first place. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I mean, that's why we were even considering the Commonwealth Games. But the Olympics have moved forward a year. If they really want and believe that this is something that that the city should look at and will leave a legacy, a sports legacy or uh, an affordable housing legacy, push it ahead a year. It gives them more time. It buys us more time to recover from from COVID, and let's do a COVID um, responsibly held game, something a little bit more scaled down perhaps, and in light of the pressures that are on everybody, not just Canada, but these other countries that will be sending athletes, let's put together a bid that reflects a COVID-19 reality, uh, a post-COVID-19 world, and see if the Commonwealth Games Committee might bite on it. But um, Lou knew. I called him, so he was aware of it. The ministry did not call him, but he never ever reached out to the ministry. They're not going to reach out to someone who hadn't contacted them. Uh, but the reality is, I wanted to get this nipped in the bud, or let's just deal with it. Is it possible or isn't it possible? Rather than just going on and on and on and having all these conversations without um, any idea of whether this can actually fly. So if we uh, give up the 2026 uh, Commonwealth bid, can we get the LRT? 
Those are two separate issues. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was trying to get you off center there, Donna. You're not going to move. Well, and, have we ever had a conversation, Scott, that doesn't bring in the LRT? <laughs> no, that's what we have to do. Absolutely. I uh, no, I hear what you're saying. So, where do you think this is going? Where do you getting back to the Commonwealth? Where do you where do you think? What do you think? Where's the solution here? I would like to see uh, just some, you know, some open dialogue. I, I you know, I've, I've, as I said, I've covered this for so long, and I remember being a reporter and saying, just give me, tell me the facts and be honest with me. I'm being honest with you. I have had a conversation. The first conversation ever with the ministry was that conversation we had a week ago. That's the first time that we sat down to talk about what do you guys want. And even then, I couldn't get a real number. It was somewhere between $700 million and a billion. And that didn't include the cost, really, of all, where all of the funding was coming for, for the uh, affordable housing. And I want to see the affordable housing here. But I don't want to necessarily tie it to the games. I think that there are other ways that we can do and uh, to address our affordable housing um, crisis here in Hamilton. I hope we can sit down and say, look, is there a way of recognizing the pressures that we all face in this COVID-19 world? Can we come up with, uh, have a conversation perhaps with the Commonwealth Committee, bring someone from the ministry to be at the table so we have proper representation and see if there's an opportunity to host a games, I think the 2030 games are probably more appropriate for the city because of the history. But if if they're absolutely not interested in 2030 and they still want the games, is it possible to do 2027? And can we do something that will leave the legacy? Do you remember the uh, World Cycling Championships and how yeah, absolutely they, they were great? It was a fabulous mm-hmm. event, and it it really showcased Hamilton internationally from a phenomenal perspective. The the um, tree canopies when they were shooting from the helicopters. It was beautiful. Yeah, it looks good. And a lot of people had a lot of fun, and I think um, afterwards they recognized it, 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 um, it was a good event. Why can't we negotiate, if this committee still wants to move forward, with the Commonwealth Games and say, look, is there a way of doing something that really reflects the world today? I mean, just today I was reading an article that two members now from the 2022 Commonwealth committee have uh, have backed out yeah they've yeah. resigned so there's there are real pressures putting on big sporting events like this when you're dealing with financial pressures associated with covid19 we have businesses i gotta stop you there donna because remember oh. from the journalistic thing we're plumb out of time uh oh donna goodness. skelly's been with us mpp <laughs> flamborough glambrook uh donna as always thanks for the time much appreciated be well all right take care You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Last night, the U.S. president discharged from Walter Reed Hospital uh, and returned back to the White House around 630. Uh, He tweeted that people should not be afraid of COVID-19, and he feels like he did 20 years ago. Here's a reminder of what the president of the United States said to Bob Woodward uh, back at the beginning of this uh, crisis uh, in late winter. To be honest with you. Sure, I want you to I wanted to... Uh, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes, sir. Because I don't want to create a panic. All right, let's bring in Reggie Cicchini, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. He is with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Good afternoon. Uh, he's, uh, we played the clip of him talking to Bob Woodward, the president, about downplaying the virus. Is that what he's doing again here, Reggie? Is that the same strategy here? Yeah, look, I mean, yesterday, President Trump's physicians came out uh, from the doors of Walter Reed uh, and in a sense said, quote, you've seen the videos, the tweets, he's back. Uh, And what we've seen from the president since he was discharged last night, uh, when I watched him walk out those doors and get on the helicopter, uh, he is back. Between getting back to the White House and taking his mask off, between putting a video out, uh, saying he could potentially be immune uh, and not to let COVID run your life, and then tweeting out this morning uh, that people like the flu should learn to live with COVID. It is just a dangerous message to be giving to an American public where 40,000 of those people are being infected every single day and 210,000-plus people have died. So what do we know about his health at this point? Well, very little. I mean, look, the, the, the physicians came out yesterday uh, and painted another rosy picture of a president who's in the middle of an aggressive treatment for COVID-19. We know he's taking remdesivir. We know he's taking dexamethasone. We know that he was given uh, an antibody treatment 
uh, that's experimental last week. And we know that he is one of the only people in the world who has been given that trio of combination. And he's the only person in America afforded an opportunity to get that kind of treatment from COVID-19, uh, which which is an affront to the families who've lost America, uh, lost loved ones uh, when he tells them to learn to live with COVID. Uh, outside of that, we don't know what else is uh, is afflicting the president. They will not describe any information about the scans of the president's lungs, whether or not there's pneumonia there or whether there's been any kind of inflammatory damage from when the initial onset came. Uh, and it is creating a transparency crisis for an administration uh, that is trying to say that, A, America is rounding the curve and that, B, the president uh, is back to his full self, despite the fact that he is currently in the White House as a COVID-positive patient on steroids. So uh, does that mean he is obviously at least quarantined for the next uh, 14 days? And how concerned are doctors about a rebound? They say the five to seven day period is very crucial. There are a number of, uh, of open questions here uh, for how things are going to go down the road. Number one, the president uh, has been told, I mean, the CDC guidelines say 14 days of isolation in the United States upon contraction of COVID-19. The president is going to be inside of a building that acts as both a residence and a workplace and is staffed with hundreds of people at all times, both in the executive residence and uh, in the executive office. Uh, and he is going to be upstairs you know, in rooms that have been turned into a makeshift Oval Office on the same floor that his wife is isolating after contracting COVID-19 and on the same floor that his teenage son also lives on. Uh, but it's, it's impossible to know if the White House will be able to keep the president from walking downstairs into the Oval Office. And this comes at a time when there are problems uh, with an outbreak of COVID-19 throughout the White House and a lack of transparency on when the president's last negative test was, meaning it's possible that we could be far beyond day five or six from from the positive test announced last week, that there's a chance he could have been positive and transmitting for days because they won't say when that last test was. Uh, and, and what about concern of a rebound? They say that, that initially a patient may come around, but then five to seven days, things start to act up. And many thought he would stay in the hospital, in the hospital until that period had passed. Is there any concern of that, about a rebound of some sort? Well, I mean, look, it's an unpredictable virus, uh, as, as medical experts and as epidemiologists have been telling us. Uh, for months now, from the beginning of this pandemic. And it is it is hard to say whether or not the president is going to be the one that fully recovers, is going to have complications from his recovery, or potentially worse. Uh, and the fact that the president discharged himself, we heard yesterday uh, from Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, that the president uh, was a part of the conversation for having him discharged from hospital. Uh, that was the president. That was a, that was that was wording to say that the president was the one pulling the strings uh, and leaving hospital in the middle of treatment. Will he rebound? It's unknown. We, we don't know how this virus works its way around, but we do know that he's a covid positive patient uh, inside a building where there are 13 or 14 people that have been infected with the virus. And there's news out right now uh, that Pentagon leadership uh, is being forced to quarantine following exposure uh, in the Department of Defense's building. So this is widespread across the country, uh, across rather the federal government, uh, and President Trump being in the White House does not make things any easier. So uh, now that he is back at the White House, and again, still positive, so still supposed to be under quarantine, should he or will he be meeting with other staff members at this time? Should he not be isolated uh, for that period, or will he be having meetings? personal meetings. It's impossible, to, it's impossible to know what the president is going to do. This is somebody that the White House and chief of staff have had a hard time uh, controlling. Uh, it, it, we don't know if he will be you know, holding any meetings with people who work inside the White House. It's hard to see somebody uh, from, from one of the external offices uh, in the federal government coming to the White House, given the situation. Uh, I can tell you right now, the physician to the president just sent a note out within the last couple of seconds here uh, saying that they just met with Trump in the residence, that he had a restful sleep and that he's not showing uh, that he, he's reporting uh, no symptoms. Uh, and this, again, raises questions to the, to, to the doctor's own physician's team because they're simply saying that he's reporting no symptoms. Um, we know that this this can be, you know, you can be asymptomatic. So there are questions now to having the president inside the White House. So uh, in regard to you were talking earlier about uh, the, the treatment he was on, the medication he was on, any reporting of how this makes you makes you feel side effects, uh, concerns of fogginess, being stable while under this sort of intense medication? 
Yeah, and look, this is a concern for uh, for a number of people in and around the White House, and it could potentially be part of the reason that we're seeing the president carry on on Twitter like he's been doing, uh, you know, over the last kind of uh, 12-ish hours since he has been discharged. Uh, everybody knows that every medication has some kind of a side effect, and medical experts uh, from around the country have been chiming in on those medications that the president is taking, uh, including remdesivir and dexamethasone, uh, the steroid, which can alter your state. They can leave you in a state of potential uh, uh, extreme delusion. They can leave you in a state uh, of feeling better than you are. That's the point of a steroid. It's to take down inflammation. It's to take down any of the pain that you're feeling. Uh, so th- there's concern here when the president is saying that he's exhibiting or not feeling uh, any any kind of symptoms or not feeling uh, bad or feeling that he you know is, is, has hasn't felt in the last 20 years. It raises questions as to whether that's simply just a side effect of a medication uh, masking any potential problems that the president uh, could be under right now. Uh, and given the fact that he's no longer receiving 24-hour hospital care, he's just in the care of the physicians at the White House, which are still uh, better than than most kind of clinics you'd see around the country. This is a grave concern that that the the United States leader uh, is sitting inside the White House, not fully recovered from COVID-19. All right. Last question here, uh, Reggie. Um, What about the others in the White House? Anybody else, any of the staff or anyone that has come in contact with him been hospitalized? For example, someone like a Chris Christie, how are they doing? We haven't had any updates, actually, on Chris Christie. We know that there is obviously uh, a, a fear for the former New Jersey governor, given his uh, kind of medical history uh, and his weight, uh, th- th- that it does pose a problem. He is in a higher risk category. The same with Rudy Giuliani. There are questions as to whether or not his negative tests could potentially come back positive. He was giving a report last night on Fox News uh, and was coughing through the entire interview. Uh, so there are questions uh, about what is to come. But this all kind of comes back to what's happening inside the White House. The efficacy of the of the testing kits being used by the White House is being called into question, given the fact that these positive cases continue to show up in people that were testing negative for days and days. Uh, We know that there is an incubation period. We know that uh, it can take time to present itself inside uh, of a positive test. Uh, So there's a fear now that, that there is going to be an expanded number of people inside the White House that continue to test positive, and there's an active effort underway uh, to try and disinfect and sanitize every surface inside the building and keep as many people out as they can. But there is a uh, a lack of information that's being handed to internal staff at the White House, uh, fearing uh, that this could tarnish uh, uh, the president's reputation. And vanity is a very big thing for this president, as we've seen over the last four years. Hmm. Reggie Giacchini with us, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News. Make sure you're watching tonight at 530 and 6 for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Let's bring in Alexandra Rar, Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Alexandra, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am, Scott, and thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's great to have you. Let's shoot nice and wide here. Just your thoughts on what has transpired in the last 24, 72 hours <laughs> and where America finds itself right now. God, it, it, it seems almost impossible, doesn't it, when you think about just what's happened in the last week? But what I would say is, you know, Trump is not surprising us. He's showing us exactly who he has been as a leader. And he is a populist and a demagogue to the bone. He doesn't make a case based on rational argument. He's not interested in facts or precedents, precedent or examples or analysis. He doesn't want to make a case at all. He just wants to appeal to your prejudices and your passions. Demagogues appeal to your guts. And that's what Trump is doing when he says what you just mentioned, Scott, when he says, don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. He's talking here about emotions. He's not telling Americans what to do to avoid getting this disease or spreading it. And he's tweeting from a medical research center with a phalanx of doctors and specialists who are all looking after him. And his message undercuts medical expertise. He says, the real school is having COVID for four days, not yeah. the book school. It's remarkable. But you know, while he was in ho- while he was in hospital, I was questioning many experts, such as yourself, as how is he going to sell this when he comes out? Let's assume he survived. He did uh, so far. Uh, how is he going to sell this to the American public, downplaying something that he has now succumbed to? But I guess we have that answer, do we not? Or do we? 
What is his answer? Look, I, th- I think that's a great question. Um, and I think part of what we're seeing is he's going to give us the story of himself as a medical marvel. Right? He's going to say, again, he's going to tell us the story about how he is an exception. He is medically extraordinary. He has a remarkable kind of immunity. This is the story he tells about himself all the time, right? That he is the singular exception, that he is the outlier. And when he tells that story, he always erases all of the enormous structural advantages that have gotten him here. So he talks about his wealth, but he doesn't talk about the huge amount of money he inherited from his dad, right? He talks about how he's feeling better than he has in 20 years, but he doesn't talk about the fact that he's getting the best medical care available in the world. So, you know, Trump always sees himself as an exception, and I don't think this is going to be any different. How will, and since since he was elected, and again, I've asked many poli-sci experts this, uh, you, you know, everybody thought this would take him down, and then that would take him down, and, and any, other, any other politician it probably would have. He just keeps, you know, trucking right along. Is this the same thing? Is this just another one of those issues where it depends on what side of the fence you are and how you react to this? Or is this, is this a tipping point in any way? Look, it's such a, it's such a great question, you know, why is Trump Teflon? How, how would anyone else get to be Teflon? And will it ever end? Will anything ever stick? Um, and in this case, I don't know. I mean, I have hopes that something will stick someday. But I think it relates to a larger question of how America thinks about and understands disaster. Because, you know, COVID isn't just, as we know all too well, another virus. It's a collective disaster we're all living through. And in America and in Canada as well, we still see that kind of disaster as as a break with the norm. We still think, you know, like when he said in March, COVID, he said it was an unforeseen problem that came out of nowhere. And that four weeks ago, no one ever would have thought that we'd have this problem. And there are real consequences for continuing to think every time a disaster happens, it's a bolt out of the blue. Because that means, look, we continue to think it's not just that it, we didn't see it coming, but that we couldn't have seen it coming. That it's just, it was unpredictable, there's nothing we could have done to stop it, and there's nothing we could have done to get to make it better. But that's an escape hatch, right? That's a way for Trump to slip out of the responsibility because he canceled funding for disaster preparedness. Just in February, he tried to cut the budgets of the National Institutes of Health and of several other scientific institutions that do the work to find the vaccines that he's saying we're going to have any minute. But you don't get a vaccine by saying it's going to come before the election. You get it by funding scientists. And Trump cut that funding. So this is a long way around, Scott, to saying, I hope this is a tipping point. But if we continue to think of disaster and of these kinds of events as something that we can't predict and we can't make better, and if we continue to accept that as an explanation, then we'll never be ready for the next time. And unfortunately, there will be a next time. Uh, here's another question you can't answer. We, but we don't have much time okay. left, about a minute. But, <laughs> uh, you know, are Americans separating themselves from the president? In other words, yeah, but that's him. He's got 20 doctors behind him. I don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's not taking very good care of himself. How can he take care of us? Are they asking that question? I think some Americans are. And I think to other Americans, Trump looks like a hero. He looks like a person whose body isn't vulnerable, right? Like, One of the things that happens when there's a pandemic is that we're frightened because our bodies are porous, right? A virus can get in and we're vulnerable to it and we don't know how to protect ourselves. And when the frightening thing is happening, some people are comforted by someone who stands up and says, I'm not vulnerable. My body is bordered just like the U.S. borders are, are protected, my body is protected. Yeah, he's, got a wa- he's got a wall around his body. There you go. That's it. Man. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to chat about this again with you. Alexandra Rar has been with us, Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, University of Toronto. Alexandra, thanks for the time. Be well. Such a pleasure. You too. Bye-bye, Scott. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, a new poll with Ledger and Associates say Canadian uh, and uh, and the Association of Canadian Studies and Leger uh, suggest that 52 percent of Canadians won't be trick or treating this year. Uh, this is kind of interesting when you look at these numbers, uh, and it, you know, and I guess this changes depending on where you were. I mean, where you are, obviously, hot spots, and then other parts of uh, the province or country, in this case, uh, that aren't as affected uh, will be, uh, I guess, going out. But Canadians are divided about all of this, and uh, this new poll certainly does suggest that. Uh, Respondents with children who went door-to-door for Halloween last year were divided on whether to let them go again this year. 52% saying they won't. 48% saying they will. Uh, two-thirds of the respondents in Atlantic Canada, which has been relatively untouched, uh, said that their kids are uh, are going out, whereas uh, in harder-hit places like Ontario and Quebec, two-thirds, up to two-thirds, say that they won't. And this, these are Canadian numbers, okay, so not provincial. But would you let your kids go out trick-or-treating this year? 52% saying no. Would you give out candy or trick or treat, uh, two trick-or-treaters this year? 49% saying no. 27% saying yes. 24% saying they, uh, they shut out the lights and hide behind the couch. Uh, will you change your plans for Thanksgiving? Split 40-40. Uh, 20% saying they don't participate. Uh, will you change your plans for the holiday season this year, meaning Christmas or thereabouts? 49% saying yes. 48, or sorry, 44% uh, percent saying no. So definitely uh, some changes in attitude when it comes to, uh, obviously, Thanksgiving and then Halloween and uh, of course, we're seeing it with Thanksgiving as well. Let's bring let's let's bring in Maureen Dennis, mom of four, parenting expert and founder of WeWelcome.ca, and is with us now. Maureen, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yes, I'm doing well. You are too. Yes, we are. So, your thoughts on this? Are you getting a lot of uh, a lot of correspondence from parents asking what to do here? Yeah, it's you know what. There's so many stressful things. I feel like we've we you know we've just got the kids somewhat kind of figured out for back to school um you know and now we're on to now we're looking ahead and i think it's it's tough with thanksgiving and halloween and then the holidays coming up these are times that we enjoy as a family these are you know great celebrations a lot of fun especially for the kids so i think parents are really kind of stressed out about it because you don't we're trying to you know give our kids as much uh normalcy as possible but we also want to keep them safe. So I think, like you said, you know, it's really going to depend on where you are, what your family situation is, and your comfort level. And you got to uh, do you, what you feel right. I saw a great invention that, that a father had, I think this was a couple of weeks ago, and it was on the news. And, he, you know, he anticipated all this happening. So, you know, he went and got himself one of those sono tubes that you, you know, use for, uh, you know, making a fence post or such, which is basically a giant paper towel roll except it's maybe yeah. 8 or 10 feet long, and he fastened it to his his uh, railing of his uh, front porch and stood at the top and just drops the candy in, and the kids are, like, however many meters away getting it at the other end. Is there a way to do this safely? I saw that. I saw that. I think that's brilliant. I think that's creative. I think that is what some people are trying to figure out what to do. I heard of another one where... Um, they were going to put bags of little bags of candy on sticks and stick those all in their lawn. And then yeah. kids could come by and just take a bag of candy. I think there's going to be a lot of um, things done that way. I think a lot of people are looking for sort of lower risk activities. Um, maybe they'll be just, you know, carving pumpkins, maybe doing small um, gatherings where they can with people maybe already in their bubble or in their cohorts from school. You know, everybody's kind of got a little bit different thing going on. Maybe doing some, you know, virtual Halloween costume contests, um, you know, maybe more scavenger hunting where you're going from not house to house to people you don't know, but maybe going around to people that you do know so that, you know, you can keep it that way. I've heard people say that they're going to, they're still going to do regular Halloween, but they're going to keep, you know, they're going to do it with masks, which ironically, you know, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I and guess then, you can decorate uh, your own mask now. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's actually funny because you were never allowed to wear a mask on Halloween to school yeah. and now kids have to wear masks to school. So there you go. Well, but, that was um, over the eyes. You, know, you can wear anything over the nose and the mouth. You just can't have it obstructing <laughs> your eyes, I guess. Fair the enough. rules are changing. Fair enough. 
but they're but they're saying they're going to go. They're still going to do it. They're going to do it with a mask. They're going to do it with hand sanitizer. And then the candy's going to come home, and the candy's going to sit. Um, I think as parents, we always kind of go through the candy anyway before the kids, um, you know, can can get to it. Um, and so maybe it just it like everything this year, it looks a little different. Um, you know, it was interesting. Um, the uh, B- BC Medical Officer of Health, Bonnie Henry, was speaking about this a couple of weeks ago, and she was leaning towards, you know, they got to get out, you're outside, it's not like you're inside, and was sort of leaning towards, you know, giving this the okay. I think she pretty much did, although that may have changed since then uh, for British Columbia. Uh, will we all be, you know, will we all sitting there waiting for the politicians to decide whether Halloween's on again or Halloween's off this year, or are parents and everybody going to evaluate their own situation and just try to figure out a way to do it? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both, to be honest. I mean, if it comes down and it says that you're not allowed to do trick-or-treating in your area, then, you know, you're not allowed. But I think that, um, you know, there's there's a there's a, a variety of what different parents are deciding to do for a lot of things. There are, there are kids who are being, you know, doing virtual school and they're at home and they have, you know, immune-compromised family members or higher risk family members and and they really are going to have to think of something different because in their house that's just not a safe um, activity but then there are other families who you know are going to probably look at it and say okay how can we do this in a smart way um, possibly regardless of what you know their their neighbors are doing um, so yeah it's you know it's it's a tough one I think that people want to like I said want to give their kids as much of a normal experience as possible day to day and this is something kids really look forward to but at the end of the day I think if kids get to get dressed up and have some fun and there's candy involved however that looks um hopefully (laughs) that's a good point as long as you bring in those a couple of elements that make it fun the candy and the costume you know there's lots of ways to do this how worried are you Maureen candy right yeah, exactly. You could just actually open the box and, you know, you'd probably be fine. Anyway, uh, how concerned are you, Maureen, uh, about this, especially at this stage? We're 30 weeks in uh, on the, you know, obviously into entering a second wave. Um, how worried are you about kids' mental health? That's a huge one. That's a huge one. And that's why I really think that parents have to look at, you know, how important is this to your kid individually? Um, you know, traditionally our, my kids, they, they do sort of group costumes with other friends and, you know, we're thinking, okay, well, does that mean that we're going, you know, it's, it's just tricky. It's tricky from all different sides because you will want to be able to give them the experience, but we also have to keep them safe. So I think that if your kid is really, really excited about it, then talk to them about, you know, what, uh, what what parts of it are they really excited about? Is it doing it with friends? Is it the candy? Is it the costume? Is it going door to door? Um, you know, I, I, I've got a couple, like I have four kids, so I've got a couple who absolutely love it. They, this is a huge holiday for them. And I've got two who really just, honestly, I can hand them a baggie of candy and, uh, you know, and, and we could watch a scary <laughs> movie and they would be more than happy sure. not to have to walk door to door to earn it. Uh, <laughs> We always mm. seem to, it always seems to rain on Halloween for us, so probably that's why my youngest is not so keen on the holiday. <laughs> so, do you think we're going to see like where you and I've done this for years, man? Like uh, the house is it, it's 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 more decorated Halloween than I think it is at Christmas. Are we going to see less yeah. of that this year? Like I'm thinking, do I bother doing that? But again, as you just mentioned, kids will still like to see it, even if they don't Absolutely. come up and knock on the I door. Go more nuts, yeah. Go more nuts than than even you usually do because it it brings like I've started to see you know giant pumpkin inflatables pop up and the giant spiders already and I think you know what that's part of the experience and that we can safely do we can decorate our houses and our yards kids can go for a walk or a bike ride or even a drive around and see the decorations I mean that's a safe way of experiencing Halloween that's that's fun for everyone so yeah go go for it. Do we need some sort of template on how to do this? Do you know, like you stand at the uh, top step and just lob the candy to the kids. Like you said, there's some situations where you can drop it down a tube or put it on the lawn. Or, uh, but, but should we, or do you think as we get closer to Halloween, there'll be some sort of template on how we do this? Well, there are some, um, you know, on the CDC website, there are some 
suggestions on, you know, lower risk activities and moderate and, and then higher risk activities. So I think, you know, we're, you're going to have to do what you're comfortable with. I think you'll start to see some guidelines come out uh, regionally or locally, because obviously, if you know, if you're in a higher um, an, uh, an area where the cases are getting, you know, the ratios are getting higher and higher, then you might want to reconsider, you know, going door to door. Whereas if you're, um, you know, in an area that has, you know, very little, then you might be, you might feel safer. It, it really depends on what you're comfortable with. And I'm sure that there will be some guidelines, but I don't think it's going to be everybody must put candy on the lawn or everybody. I mean, you can kind of do what you want now anyway. Sometimes you just go up and it can, it's the honor system anyway. So, you know, yeah, yeah. let's remind those teenagers. So what advice? Take it all. <laughs> that's right. Advice. What advice do you have for parents who are feeling a little anxious about all this? Yeah, I mean, I, I just I just had a Zoom call with a lot of my girlfriends um, and, you know, we've got a wide variety of ages of people and we, we have very different families and and some are pretty much uh, locked down due to, you know, their own personal preferences, but also, you know, their situations with who is in their family. And then there are others who are, you know, living life pretty much as normal, but with a mask and hand sanitizer. So I think we're going to see that range. Um, and I think what's really important in general, but also when we look at these holidays is we have to stop judging each other. We have to stop saying, oh, well, they're clearly out of their bubble. You don't know what their situation is. You don't know that they're maybe they're doing it safely. Maybe they're doing it um, because of their child's mental health, because of their grandparents' mental health of wanting to be able to see the kids in their costume. Let the judgment stop at your door. Do what you want to do. But, you know, let's let's have a little patience with each other um, because there's a lot of judgment, uh, especially on social media right now. And you don't know you don't know the story behind everybody. You know, that's really important to remember. I remember being a kid and going around trick or treating and there was a uh, our dentist who lived in the neighborhood and you'd go to his house and he'd give you a comic book. And you thought, oh, man, really? Come on, a comic book. But I wonder if this year if we'll see hand sanitizer handed out. <laughs> I'm sure there will be people who have, that's not actually a bad idea. If you had a big bottle of hand sanitizer and you, you know, had that there at least with you, but I think it's, yeah, it's going to be, um, it's going to be an interesting year and I'm not sure what we're going to get or how we're going to get it. I'm surprised your dentist didn't give you toothbrushes. That's what our dentist gave us. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I, I think you're right. Toothbrush. But I remember one year comic books, maybe that was better than the toothbrush. That's why I remember that. Maybe toothbrushes Probably. were a little too much. It was an upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I get this when I go for an appointment. What do I want this now for? Uh, Maureen Dennis has been with us. Mom of four parenting expert, founder of WeWelcome.ca. Uh, talking about Halloween. Maureen, thanks for the time at Inside. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Thanks for having me. Uh, obviously, we're talking about Thanksgiving weekend and what we have to do in order to stay safe. Then, of course, the conversation moves to Halloween. Uh, wh- what do we do regarding kids and trick-or-treating? And then, of course, after that, it, it's it's the big holiday season, Christmas, what have you. And all of the events, things that go around, on around that. Think of, you know, someone was talking, and speaking of the hospitality industry, what about uh, all the parties there are around the holiday season time? I mean, my goodness, a, a lot of these establishments make, uh, you know, a great deal of, deal of their annual income just in the month of December, uh, catering to all the organizations, businesses, such that, that are that are throwing celebrations. So, man, you got to wonder how this is all going to, uh, uh, you know, play out over the course of, of the next few months until uh, we get a vaccination. Obviously, uh, lots of uh, plans are being altered, uh, and of course, that of the Santa Claus, uh, Santa Claus Parade. Uh, Toronto uh, will broadcast theirs in the evening. Uh, Moncton, New Brunswick, this is kind of interesting, they're doing a stationary parade, and people are walking past it at a safe social distance. So, my goodness, I guess uh, we're, you know, uh, when when uh, life gives you lemon, you do a lemon, you do what you can with it. But the majority of these uh, parades, which go on in every community uh, across the land, have been canceled, and Hamilton is no different. Let's bring in Doug Hobson, chair of the Hamilton Santa Claus Parade Committee, and he is with us now. Doug, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you very much for inviting me. Obviously, a tough decision to make. Uh, when, when did you guys make this decision? Way back when, and and what sort of what sort of criteria goes into this? 
Well, we started talking about it come May, and it took us a couple of months to finally have to realize that we're not going to have much of a choice but to cancel. Um, our biggest decision, of course, was whether or not the city of Hamilton would issue any permits for having a parade, mm. which we all kind of, I think we all knew the truth to that, but didn't want to yeah. admit it too early. And we're hanging on to hope. But as things progress, we realize that it's not going to ha- be able to happen. And most of our, our entries in our parade have booked with us by the end of June beginning of July at the latest. So it's really tough to get people to hold off and not make commitments until August or September because all the bands that participate, not all the bands, but most of the bands that participate participate in our parade participate in surrounding parades as well. So everybody needs those commitments rather early because a lot of them are doing multiple parades. And again, with with what's happening with the pandemic, you can see how that's becoming more and more uh, impossible uh, just as time goes by. So what does this mean for the following year, Doug? Does this set you back? Or is it full steam ahead for the following year? What does this do to the organization and the finances of the parade, missing a year like this and then just hoping for next? Um, we're going to be okay financial-wise. Um, we didn't have to commit a whole lot of finances prior to the parade. So in that regard, we're going to feel a sting like everybody else is, uh, just on monthly costs that evolve for maintenance and, and such. But we're focusing on next year's parade. We, we're, we're crossing our fingers that next year goes through, and we are hoping to make next year's parade that much better, uh, try to concentrate and hitting it really hard and making up for the missed year of this year. This is the first time in our committee's history that we've had to cancel our parade. Yeah, that is something. I can't think it, I can't think of that either. And, you know, you have to hope, Doug, that with missing it for a year, next year will be, oh, you know what, we've been taking that for granted. We're going we're gonna to take advantage and get out and see it next year. So hopefully next year we'll get lots out for it. Right, and, and there's a lot of th- there's a couple other things going on next year. I mean, if everything goes through, we're supposed to have the great cut next year too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know, hopefully we can work off each other's excitement and get that much more interest going. There you go. Doug Hobson's been with us, chair of the Hamilton Santa Claus Parade Committee. Obviously, this year's edition canceled due to uh, COVID-19. Uh, but again, uh, extra emphasis on making it extra special next year. Doug, thanks for the time and insight. Good luck with next year. Thank you very much. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.